Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello, and thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your guest host, Josephine Taylor. I'm an associate editor at Westerly, an adjunct senior lecturer in writing at Edith Cowan University, and author of the novel Eye of a Rook. I'm speaking from Wajak Noongar Budja, next to the Wadan in Perth. I'd like to acknowledge the myriad ways in which this country sustains my life and work, and I offer my gratitude and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. Today I'm interviewing Australian author H.C. Guildfind, who I also know as Helen. H.C. Guildfind has published fiction, essays and book reviews in Australia, overseas and online. Her book The Worry Front was published in 2018 by Margaret River Press. This short fiction collection includes the novella Quarry, which won the Griffith Reviews Novella Project in 2015. In 2020, Guildford won the Miami University Press International Novella Competition. Born Sleeping was published in the USA in March 2021. Welcome, Helen. Well, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, before we begin with our conversation, could you please introduce the two books, The Worry Front and Born Sleeping, so that listeners know a little bit about them? Yep. Um, so The Worry Front, which was published in 2018, is a short fiction collection, which includes the novella Quarry, as you just said. Um, and it's what I would describe as a mix of um, absurd, macabre, surreal and two real stories that are um, interested in irrevocable acts, immutable facts, and the relentless uncertainties that lie at the dark heart of every life. And Born Sleeping, which was just published by Miami University Press, um, is a novella, and it's, it recounts in the second person um, one woman's witnessing of another couple's experience of stillbirth. Thanks, that's great. 
I also thought to set the scene a little bit, we could talk a little bit about how we actually know each other <laughs> because we've known each other for a few years now and um, I think I first came across your name when I was on the editorial board of Margaret River Press and you submitted your manuscript and we were immediately impressed with the work in there. Anyway, I eventually ended up um, editing your book and... Um, <laughs> and it was traumatising. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't believe, don't believe. Um, it was, uh, yeah, which you actually went on to write a um, blog post for Margaret River Press called, I think she murdered my brain or how she did. <laughs> you, did. you literally did. I, I have a memory from the last, just before you were going to submit the manuscript and you were, of course, going through some more revisions and I literally felt something shift in my brain and I could no longer read the screen. <laughs> And that, that, that's, when I, that's when I sort of gave up on editing. I'd done my best. Um, so you literally did give me brain damage. In that <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll thank you again for you did a huge amount of work on that collection. Um, and I'm sure most writers would agree that when you have a good editor who really cares about what they're reading, it's like getting a masterclass in writing. Um, it's quite humiliating as well, of course, because you, you pointed out all of my, you called them writer's ticks. Um, which is a nice euphemism for obsessions and stupidities. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a really interesting, valuable process in itself to be edited that closely with somebody who respects your work. Yeah, thank you. Um, look, I think from an editor's perspective and from a, being a writer as well, I learned so much. I think that's the when when that relationship is working at its best is you're actually both learning and sort of growing and your skills are kind of increasing. But I really, really hope your brain has mended. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Partially. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, anyway, we'll continue and see. Um, <laughs> So the other thing is too, I'd really uh, recommend reading this the blog post um, because it's hilarious. <laughs> and this is one thing that you might not pick up from Helen's um, writing or perhaps more recent writing because it's dealing with quite um, shocking and traumatic subject matter. But what um, other people would also know, and especially probably on Twitter, is that you're actually also very funny and have a great sense of humour. And this, I think it also comes out in some of the stories in The Worry Front. Um, it's obviously not so, not obvious in Born Sleeping. I think you're in <laughs> That is very not, very not funny story. Very not funny at all. But yeah. there are some of the, the stories in um, The Worry Front. So I'm thinking of the two stories, for instance, um, of the, called the, the Worry Front and Eat, Shit, Die, which both have a tremendous amount of black humour, I think, and also satire in uh, Solomon Jeremy Rupert Jones. So would you yeah. agree that there's humour in your writing, in some of your writing? Well, ho hopefully my stories aren't like me on Twitter where I'm probably a complete tryhard. <laughs> but um, humour, well, I always talk about Laurie Moore as a, the ultimate short story writer because she can totally do the tragedy, the sort of tragic comedy. And I think for me that's the most realistic perspective to have on life just because things are just so ridiculous a lot of the time and often that ridiculousness is um, at the worst moments. So 
So, so for instance, with each shit die, you know, you have colonoscopies and, you know, torrents of shit, someone who's unwell and they're, they're in a, their body's in a catabolic state, which is extremely distressing. Um, but it's also, you lose all your dignity and in a social context, in a social context, all you can do is laugh at that. Right, what else are you going to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's that extraordinary scene in there with the woman at the supermarket. That's actually based on a memory from childhood. And I remember being a, a little girl and we're at the supermarket checkout and there was an elderly lady, beautifully dressed. You know how a lot of older women are they're sort of more old-fashioned but beautifully dressed um, woman. And there was, you know, shit on her shoe. So she'd had an accident in public. And mm-hmm. as a little girl, of course, you know, like in the story, you, you sort of, you, you're not, you don't understand the context. So you're just looking at that and you want to point and, you know, um, ask your mum, look. And, you know, in, in real life, my mother probably elbowed me in the head and gave me a death look, <laughs> which is her, her usual way of dealing with things. Um, but yeah, but these things happen all the time. So that's the observant eye. We don't eye. talk about them. Yeah, no, sorry. no, I was going to say that's the observant eye of the writer as well. And it shows how we sort of catalogue these things that cause us confusion. And we try to sort of make sense of them, though we know we can't. Yes. Um, and I, I quite like the way, because I didn't know that that was a childhood memory, but of course it makes sense that it was. But I like the way too that then you kind of give that steroids, you put it on steroids, and so the mop, <laughs> the mop comes out and the kind of, I don't know. But, if but that's happens. what happens in real life. Yeah. Yeah, 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 because they have to clean it up. Yeah. And like in, in, the, in the fictional story, the little kid goes, Pwah! You know, yeah, <laughs> which right. is exactly what you don't want anyone to say because everyone's and the thing that's kind of beautiful is that um people when these things happen most people are very kind and that's another thing that you sort of want to capture which is the absolute respect people have for someone who's suffering or in trouble um so I guess that's that's where you sort of you get the comedy from the little kid who's going to cause a scene and you know for him you know shitty 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 it's funny stuff and then you have the context which is very serious which mm. is people recognising that this woman, you know, she's probably going to go home and realise what happened. Mm. Um, you know? Allowing her dignity in that That's right. process. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm thinking about the little boy and, and then I'm thinking about animals and place. But anyway, we'll we'll <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I guess also what I'd say about these stories and what I really noticed in working with you on them, the stories in the worry front, is the diversity in tone and perspective, um, point of view, form. Was this a deliberate decision on your part to write in very in many different modes? No. I was just, you sort of, you, you, you preempted some of these questions last night so I could think about them. And no, I just kind of, you just sort of hear voices, <laughs> which sounds troubling. But um, even just like walking down the street or like the other guy had a, a, a logger, you know, someone who logs trees, delivering stuff. And his voice is so distinct. Like the way he was talking to me, the way he was telling his stories, it's, it's like it just goes into your head and then it starts to create its own narrative as well. So it's not chosen. Um, it just kind of, Something interests you and you follow it. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I don't think that's weird at all. I think that's what, right. Well, it's certainly what I do too. Um, yeah. But I was, a lot of writers would do that, I think. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah, and you you usually don't have any real choice in that. It's it because it's a compulsion, really, or a sense of that you need to follow where that takes you, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, I did like the fact because I think we also kind of we didn't battle over Solomon. Um, oh, it? you hated that story. I Come on, like just it. admit it. You hated yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. I think that I don't know that I hated it ever, but I didn't get it. And I think us working on it 
helped me to get it because it was and also it was so different. I think I just like kind of dark, serious writing. Yeah. And yeah, so I really liked I, pre, I, I gradually appreciated what you were doing with it. And I, it was interesting that a reviewer, at least one reviewer, has singled it out as well. So, you know, obviously it found really appreciative readers as well. Um, I'm, just I'm not sure about that because actually I find your response, so this is something that, and maybe as a writer you could answer this too, I don't know if you have this problem, the things that you like in your writing, I, I don't mean paragraphs, I mean like a whole story that you've written, you write it and you love it and, you know, everyone's going to hate it. <laughs> then they do but you still love it do you ever have that experience yes yes I had it very recently (laughs) was that was that the thing that you sent me yes 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 yeah so what 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 do you do with that like so with when I was working with you with that story so by that point we'd worked together we'd also worked out our little I think that we had a little freak out at the beginning um we were working together so we'd worked out the whole power dynamics and um the friendly dynamics Um, and by that point I respected you as a reader and I knew you hated that story and yet I still wanted to cling to it. But there's a little seed of doubt there. Who should I be listening to? What, mm. what, how do you react to that as a writer? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, no, same. And I'm going to really keep trying to put this back on you. This is, this is <laughs> talking about you. But yes, exactly. I think there's a part of me that kind of when I show that to somebody, I want some kind of appreciative response. But I also think, well, damn you, I'm going to do what the heck needs to be done here as well. So I think I have kind of that same kind of ambivalence. I think that as writers we need to kind of do what the hell we need to do. Um, And I think we've talked about this a little bit too in relation to um, Born Sleeping, so perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into that. Um, But the other thing too I was going to say was I really, because I had no involvement in Born Sleeping and I was really just blown away by when I first read it. Um, I think I had that same, same kind of reaction I did to the, the novella Quarry, which is in um, The Worry Front. I think I whenever I read Quarry, I cry, and I've read it many, many, many times. And I think, the first time, <laughs> no, I think the first time I read it, I sobbed. I just sobbed and sobbed. And um, I, I think this also goes to what we've talked about before about embodied responses and um, the body in writing and so on. But can I ask, is that why you called yourself um, or why your pen name is HC? Is that, is that resisting of gendering? It's, it's an absolute re- revulsion with the notion of women's writing. I never want my work to be read as women's writing. There's no such thing. Um, of course, the sexed body is real. But I think our minds are much more similar than different. Um, and apart from that, I mean, you know, I'm sure you'd probably agree that women's writing just becomes, you know, a discrete genre. And men's writing, therefore, is presumed to be the norm against which all of the writing is judged. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. But I think, too, that there's that whole thing of women's writing then becomes a sort of this massive amorphous generalisation as yeah. well. Um, which sort of sucks everything into it and, and, and it can lose meaning when it becomes that, that generalised and amorphous. But it's also because there's such a history of women's writing being read, read as in a sort of pathologising way as well. And sure. the, narrator, the narrator in Born Sleeping, is, she's acutely aware that all her thoughts and feelings are always going to be pathologised, hmm. um, which is why she tends to pathologise herself. You know? Yes, as a, as a preemptive measure. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so I think in the digital age where we have to have these sort of public personas, um, it's almost impossible to take your identity out of your authorship. Mm. 
but my faith still very old-fashioned sort of way my faith is still in the fact that the book will go on into the world yes. and will be read detached from its author mm-hmm. and for me that is what books are all about great old-fashioned <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure it's it's um it's a grappling it's a it's a constant grappling so in that way it's uh, you're cutting edge Helen <laughs> I don't know. well I don't know about that <laughs> I think I think it's just a uh, this is, it's a irritation with the digital space in a lot of ways. Okay. Well, let's move. Yeah, well, that can open up a whole, whole can of worms. Okay. Um, let's something, move on. Something to, grumpy. <laughs> let's move on to animals and um, and humans as animals. Um, I think that this comes up for me. It came up in so many stories in uh, the worry front. So we have Gently Gently, Adrian Quarry, uh, Ferryman, The Broken Body. They all in some way sort of bring out the notion at some point about uh, or animals are very central or the human is an animal. Um, and this is also in Born Sleeping, I think. I'm just having a look at um, something I've marked here on page four where it says... Um, <laughs> You look at what he's made, a stir-fry. It smells delicious. Your stomach rumbles. Saliva squirts under your tongue. You are as sophisticated as a dog. Uh, What are you doing with animals? Not only in these books, I've also read another short story of yours that's very, I think, has dogs very central to it as well. What what are you doing with animals? (laughs) Um, I think there's a number of things. The, the, The central... One would be sort of what you just said there, that we are, we are just animals. Um, I shouldn't say just animals, we are animals. And I think we're animals before we're anything else. Um, but we generally function and act um, in our bodies and our societies as if our brains are the ones leading the show. Um, and I think that's a very stupid, <laughs> stupid way to see ourselves. Um, it, it, that has an illusion that we can control control our bodies we can control our reactions we can understand everything um, and it's a bit like you with um solomon the story solomon that you don't like um, part of the reason i did like that story was the lack of clear motivation because i don't think we and and you keep hearing this in like short story workshops or short story advice and it really really annoys me what is your character's motivation because for me the reality is we don't normally actually understand our motivations we have absolutely no idea what's driving us and we sure as hell don't know what's driving someone else. Mm. And, I mean, that's where a lot of the absurdism comes in. <laughs> um, but for me, I think that's very important to understand in your life but also in your writing that, the, that we are just animals who are seeking the most basic things, um, safety, sex, you know, food, water, whatever. And for me, for me that's the beginning and end point of being a human is being an animal. Um, other than that, I guess I have an interest in animals um, in terms of our failure as humans to recognise them as persons, as individual beings. Um, so I'm going to go vegan on you now just to <laughs> alienate your audience. <laughs> um, I think, and, and for me, that's something that I've, I've related to animals probably more than people throughout my whole life. And the particular, the particular particularity and intelligence of animals is something that matters to me and I want to see that depicted in fiction. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does make sense, absolutely. And, and I think that, that you, you do that really well and, and very 
cleverly, I think, and, but not necessarily obtrusively. I think it's, it's unobtrusive generally. Um, I was going to say something else. I think there's a point in, in perhaps in Born Sleeping uh, where you talk about animals and place as well as having no expectations, placing no demands, um, yeah. and that's that I at some point I think the narrator talks about um, that, that that hell is other people <laughs> <laughs> and that um, that animals and place they give you that sort of freedom from that that they have don't have expectations is that is that part of what's going on here too yeah and again I guess that probably fits into the general pattern of writing against social norms which is I mean I don't think I'm special that social norms affect me more than anyone else you can see that they affect people all the time in how they conceive of themselves and how they relate to other people um, but for me animals in the environment or places um, I think the phrase I use is they let you be and you know, well, for me, that's a truism. I, people might not agree. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also, and for me, it's a rejection of a sort of anthropocentric conception of experience um, where you are in some sort of at the top of a hierarchy of intelligence and importance rather than being sort of everyone's at the bottom together. Sure. Yeah, I'm thinking of, um, I'm reminded of your short story, The Wished For in uh, The Worry Front and how... Um, the, the narrator speaks about the kind of pressures and the pressures that that she's resisting that come to her from the outside world. She's alone. She's in the in the forest. Um, in that case, is it the what's the forest? How is the forest acting here? Is this the thing that you can't control? Because in that in that context, the the place is really slightly threatening. Yeah, well, I think in the narrator in that story, she's pushing back against what women spend their whole lives cooking, pushing back against, which is the relational identity, you know, that you are, you are nothing unless you're somebody's partner, mother, child, daughter, et cetera. So she's rejected that. But then the question is, as an animal, um, without her pack in a way, which is human and social, whether it's good or bad, um, is she safe, either psychologically or in terms of, I mean, in that story, it, it kind of manifests in a material way, but it's really a psychological lack of safety. Like, because I, I remember my mum saying to me when I was little, something like, you don't know who you are until you relate to someone else. And as a good little girl, I go, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, the older I get, it's like, God, what a crock. <laughs> when I'm with someone, I, I feel effaced. And it's when I'm alone um, that I feel that I'm myself. And there's that tension between those two things that I think that story is about, like, where do we exist? in our yeah. minds and bodies or in the eyes and minds of others. Yes, absolutely. I love that interplay between inside and outside as well. I'm also really interested because a lot of what you're saying there I think applies to born sleeping as well. Um, and I, I think that there's a kind of real overlap in, in some of your narrators. Uh, so like the narrator in Gently Gently in The Worry Front and the narrator in, in The Wished For, there are very strong elements of those for me, narrators um, in the narrator of um, Born Sleeping, the kinds of issues that, that the narrator in Born Sleeping is grappling with. I, I guess as, as going into um, talking a bit more about um, Born Sleeping, I'm really interested in us using the word narrator because for me um, narrator has a kind of almost like a stage-like quality to it. 
Whereas what I experience in reading your book is this really deeply embodied subjectivity. Um, and I feel that that's what you're trying to create. What interests me about that is that the scenes in Born Sleeping, the scenes in um, many of the stories of the worry front sort of emerge from that subjectivity and it, it operates slightly differently to writing where, where we create a scene, we write a scene and the characters sort of come into it. With, with Born Sleeping, it feels to me that I'm inside that person as she's travelling the world. Yes, I've, I've dominated you yeah. <laughs> as a writer. Well, it's true. Finally. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's um, the trick of the second person, which a lot of people hate because um, it's quite confrontational, but it's also very intimate. Now, the reason I think it's confrontational is, you know, you can imagine having an argument with someone, you, 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 you know, you're waving your finger at them. And um, the reason it's quite intimate as well is, you know, do you talk to yourself as you? Do you? Oh, you're asking you, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in your own um, head. No. Okay, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for me, the second person, it, it evokes me the notion of a mind talking to itself, even as it objectifies itself. So okay. you have that simultaneous objectivity and subjectivity happening at the same time. And as a reader, when I use the second person, I'm telling you what to do. And it's very dominating and controlling. And you can't escape that. As a, as a reader when I'm um, using the second person. And I think that's why people don't like it. But I also think why it's very powerful at forcing you to experience what the narrator is experiencing. Mm. Um, Look, as an example of that, perhaps it would be great to read an extract from Born Sleeping uh, to not only uh, have that sense of interiority beautifully uh, narrated to you, but also <laughs> to perhaps... Uh, bring out some of these ideas we're talking around. Could you do that, please? Yep. So is this the little section about writing about this terrible thing that's happened to this couple? Yeah, yep. page, okay. bottom of page 34. Yep. yep. Okay. So this is a little bit long, so listeners will have to be a little bit patient. <laughs> it has taken years for you to learn that profound life experiences and the big questions they provoke are best approached crabwise, best squinted outside long. This is how you avoid getting overwhelmed. This is how you see that such big events are only, in the end, <clears throat> constituted by tiny details and subtle shifts. The writer's job is to describe these glimpses and moments precisely. That's all. This is how writers help readers to articulate and challenge their own experiences. It is not a writer's job to entertain with titillating tricks that deny the complexity of reality. But this baby's death is not a trick. This baby's death is the reality. Doesn't this matter? Doesn't this realness permit you, perhaps even oblige you, to use it in a story? Or will storying its death automatically reduce it to an obvious, predictable, and thus melodramatic literary device? You recall a gnarly old professor writer who, in lieu of opening introductions, simply announced to your workshop group, let me tell you all something. The writer is always, always the stupidest person in the room. He savoured your communal flinch as you each recognise the truth in what he said. Why else did you all scurry home each night, baffled and scared, trying to make sense of things via words on a page? Later, in a one-to-one -one meeting, he drawled at you, you know what you keep saying in workshop? It's too obvious. But some things just are obvious. Most of your goddamn life is obvious. Without obviousness, obviousness, there's no way into a story. Without obviousness, 
You can't make layers. Layers of meaning. Do you know what I mean? Perhaps, after all, you know as much about writing as you do about life. Nothing. Perhaps you are confusing good writer with literary writer. That is, the kind of writer most people cannot stand to read. Perhaps there is something fundamentally wrong with the values that disallow you from writing about real things that matter to real people, which brings you to a related issue, appropriation. You think, this is not my story to tell. I must not be one of those writers who feed on the pain of others. And then in the narrative, they go for a little walk and they come back. Maybe your concerns are just excuses an eloquent means of denying that you're just not up to the task of writing. Because in reality, there are many ways to deal with literary and eth ethical quandaries. You could, for example, completely ignore them. Irrespective of what others might think, you know that your stories are painstakingly crafted fictions. Also, you could deal with the issue of appropriation by refusing to usurp the parent's point of view. You suspect you'd revert to habit anyway and write in the second person, that paradoxical perspective that evokes intimacy and detachment, the self and the other, the individual and the communal, all at once. Or you could write under another name. This would also honour your belief that a story is its own thing, a worded artefact whose power and meaning derives only from its interaction with the mind of the reader. You recoil from these permissive lines of reasoning. No, I cannot write this story, you think. I cannot pick over the corpse of a real dead baby. I won't, I can't. Except that, of course, you can. You can do whatever the hell you want. And then at the end of that chapter, she reflects again. Fuck it. Write what you want to write. Write what you need to write. Stories belong to everyone. And words, after all, are the only human place you've ever felt at home in. Thank you. Um, there's so much to unpack there. Um, perhaps we could begin with um, that last bit about the permissiveness of writing or, or the need to give yourself permission to write. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to read out that little last bit, which sounds like anger or aggression or a sense, even a sense of entitlement to write other people's stories. Um, and in the context of the novella, I would hope people would recognise that it's not that at all. And I think this is a general anxiety with writers, um, which is not an entitlement to write other people's stories, but a compulsion and a need to do so. Um, have that, have that answered your as a way of understand, <laughs> As a way of understanding or as a way of trying to understand? Well, partly what I say in the novel right here is words are a place to live in. You know, a lot of us spend our whole lives revolve around living in these stories and writing them. And obviously we're compelled to understand the world around us. And if we can't engage imaginatively in the things that we witness, how on earth can we understand them? And I don't think it's entitled um, to write someone else's story. And I think this, has, this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot. People who are worried about appropriation, understandably, like there's real concerns, um, political and cultural concerns about this concern about appropriation who are they who are they imagining readers and writers to be so for me the only readers and writers that I'm imagining when I'm um, writing something like that and also when I'm reading someone else's book are serious people who are very doubtful about the world around them they're, they're not there to claim anything from anyone they're just trying to understand things um, there's no sense of entitlement in the readers and writers that I imagine in, in, on the contrary, they're compelled by doubt. 
and stories are the only way that we can, for me, that we can make meaning of our cultural world, of our so bodies, of everything, psychology. Mm-hmm. In that sense, you're talking about a particular kind of writer, though, aren't you? I think, I, yeah, because I've, I've been wondering about this. I, I know, but, yeah, I, I, I do wonder why people would assume that other people are so entitled or so ignorant or so incapable of evaluating the world around them in a sensitive, um, self-aware way. Because for me, that's, I assume that's what people are like. Now, I don't assume that I'm more self-aware than them or more sensitive than them. I think most people, even if they're not writers, are using stories to understand the world around them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess um, all I'd say in response to that is just as we are socialised, our gender is socialised, we also bring along with us our, our history and our kind of, of collective yeah. cultural history as well. Yeah. So I guess uh, that in that case some people have had um, the opportunity to tell, to write much more than many others but yeah. in what you're and you obviously agree with that but in what you're saying is there's something about the benefit of the doubt of of, of, of you know of writers that that some writers are actually also aware of that and doing their best to kind of be in that place of doubt and finding out yeah yeah but I mean I think what you're signaling there is it's not about who writes what it's about who is allowed to who, who is whose voices are amplified and that's more to do with power structures outside of the writing itself, I think. Mm. Well, we could have a whole, we could skip <laughs> that for yeah. hours about that. Um, I'll, yeah, so I'll leave. So it's obviously very complicated. I mean, it is I don't really, want to simplify really complicated, it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, I'm always interested and I guess um, I think it's very important to, to have that word doubt as, as there um, because I agree that once you start sort of fixing into certain stances, then you've got a problem because, it, you know, attitudes become polarised. Yeah, and I think um, that's so, so the reason I read out that, fuck it, write what you want to write. She's not saying I'm entitled to write what I want to write. What she's saying is I don't know the answer to this ethical conundrum. Hmm. And yep. there, is no, there is no clear answer. Yeah. I think that that's the problem. Okay, absolutely. And um, I think, too, that what I'd say about the book as a whole is it's, it's profoundly interested in, in ethics um, and, and the you does kind of enact that kind of ethical um, relationship with the other as well. So it's really interesting that little bit where you're talking about the use of the second person point of view and using another name uh, because that's a very sort of metafictive kind of moment yeah. How aware of you uh, as you're writing of the, the, the babushka dolls, the dolls with the dolls? <laughs> I'm pretty aware. Like you, you sort of, you know that there's readers will only have a certain amount of tolerance to that as well. So you don't want to be, um, Yes. You're, you're trying not to be self-indulgent. You, you're trying, that, I mean, there's, that whole section got a lot of cutting. And now that I'm reading, I could probably cut some more. But um, I, I think you're very aware of that. You're pushing your luck a bit with readers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about um, this idea of bearing witness in writing? Uh, because I think that's what we're also talking around. Um, yeah. Yeah, perhaps could you speak a little bit about, because I think so, at some point in Born Sleeping, um, on page 22, there's this idea of that, that somebody was seeking witness um, yeah. what, what is your idea of seeking witness and bearing witness? Um, well, I think I'll, I'll, should I read the little quote that I've come across? Sure. So this is from Natalie Diaz and this is, um, yeah, I'll just read it. 
Bearing witness is an interesting term. Most people don't bear it at all. They just look. They just look with their eyes and write with their eyes and go to sleep. I think that's a very interesting quote. Um, and I think what it, what it is pushing back against is careless appropriation because an, an, active, yeah, an active empathy is inherently appropriative. You have to steal someone's shoes in order to you know, walk in them. And then you have writers who'll do that and they'll say, oh, no, I'm making, bearing witness to this person's suffering. And I think Diaz's quote is saying, no, you're not. Um, so for me, the whole idea of bearing witness is morally loaded. I think witnessing is the best we can do. And I think our bodies witness things much better than our brains. And we know that from the physiological responses we have to other people's stories. So somebody cries and you cry. It's got nothing to do with your thoughts. You can't help it. So I think... Um, my novella, so Born Sleeping, tries to make readers bear witness with their bodies more than with their minds. I'm not sure if it achieves it, but that's what it's trying to do. No, no, that, that absolutely achieves it. And I think that's what I was talking about with Quarry too. I don't, I don't really understand why I have that reaction every time. And I know that sometimes I'll be quite detached at certain points during reading and, and in Born Sleeping is sort of admiring the kind of the skill <laughs> of the writer and so on. Um, but then I'm affected physically, um, and I think in the same way the narrator is affected physically. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we're not. We don't really have time to sort of talk about this so much. I'd like to talk about, but um, particularly about the perspective aspect, um, the sort of, of the future tense, which you use a lot in your writing. Um, you know, she knows in 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 four weeks' time she will do this. She will. I love the way in which you telescope time through memory and through using that tense. Yeah. Um, but also because we are kind of close to the end, your books. I think Born Sleeping was published in the USA. Where where can readers get a hold of your books? Um, if just um, the worry front, you should try Margaret River Press first of all. Um, and then just have a look online at the usual suspects. And if you can't find the worry front, just get in touch with me by my website and I'll make sure you get a copy. Um, and Born Sleeping, again, just look online, look at Booktopia. Um, I think Avid Reader might have some copies and otherwise you'll probably have to get it from America or the UK. Right. Um, yeah. Thanks. And hopefully they just keep selling and become <laughs> more readily available. Yeah. It really is magnificent writing and I really enjoy it. Reading so much, both of them, the intelligent writing, uh, it's terrific. Um, finally, just the final question to finish on. I know that this is a Words and Nerds podcast question. Why yeah. do you write? Am I allowed to quote another writer or is that cheating? Oh. <laughs> well, because Zadie Smith a, puts it perfectly. So no, I can't, this is not the exact quote, but it's more or less um, uh, something along the lines of I write so that I might not sleepwalk through my entire life. So it's about noticing. And understanding. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. That's beautiful. And also it's um, excuse my grandfather clock chime in the background there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that also refers back to born sleeping as well and being woken up. Yeah. 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 I agree. Thank you. That that's fabulous. Um Thanks again, Helen, for coming on the Words and Nerds podcast. It's been an absolute delight to speak to you as always and lovely that our conversation <laughs> will actually be heard by other people on this occasion. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> a 
thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.